In 2018, the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point made national news for a controversial plan. UW-Stevens Point is proposing to cut 13 majors, most in the liberal arts. Programs that could be eliminated include English, history, philosophy, art, and political science. Stevens Point was facing a multi-million dollar budget deficit. Meanwhile, the university hopes to expand programs in what it calls areas with high-demand career paths, things like computer information systems, finance, and chemical engineering. Here's the school's provost, Greg Summers. In the 1970s, when the UW system was first formed, our institution got about 50% of its budget from state taxpayers, and right now it's about 15%. Uh, That's been a long-term, decades-long decline. It's probably got worse in, in recent years. Stevens Point eventually backed off much of the scheme, but the story highlighted the struggle a number of disciplines in the humanities now have attracting majors. History, for example. Over the past decade, many college history departments have seen a steep decline in the number of students who major in that field. That kind of drop can threaten the viability of a department at a time when overall student enrollment is also on the way down. And many colleges and universities are looking for ways to cut costs. From American Public Media, this is the Educate Podcast. I'm Stephen Smith. In this episode, we'll look at what historians have been doing to combat the decline in history majors. In 2007, the United States economy began its slide into the Great Recession. There just seems to be no let-up in concern about the economy. The number of folks filing for unemployment benefits has hit a record high. There's a great deal of fear that is beginning to fan through the markets right now, kind of like a bad forest fire. In the recession's wake, the number of business majors nationwide went up, and enrollment for humanities majors dropped. Julia Brookins is with the American Historical Association. The number of history degrees granted, bachelor's degrees, fell from 35,000 in 2012 to this last year, fewer than 24,000. So it's a decline of a third from the peak, and that's a lot. Not many history majors go on to get graduate degrees and teach. There are just too few job openings at American colleges and universities. Meanwhile, schools are competing for a dwindling number of students overall, and many are looking to cut costs. So a declining pool of majors can be a threat to departments. Fewer jobs for tenured professors, more reliance on part-time adjuncts. We want to avoid a spiral of disinvestment in history programs. And if we don't have majors, it's a lot harder to justify having faculty, for example. And if we don't have faculty, we can't teach any history courses. So I think having the major has been central to maintaining history departments. So in 2009, the American Historical Association decided to confront the problem. The AHA is the largest organization of professional historians in the world. Jim Grossman is executive director. One of the things that we realized was that a lot of parents wanted their uh, children, for good reason, to major in things that would lead to employment. And a lot of employers didn't really understand what a student who majors in history learns, what they know, what they can do. The AHA organized a group of historians from colleges and universities across the country to tackle the problem. They met with employers in different regions of the country. Grossman was at one such meeting in West Virginia, historians and human resource specialists. A professor was explaining how history majors often do what's called a senior capstone project that involves extensive research and oral history interviews. And one of the HR people, I think, I can't remember which one it was, said, well, so do you schedule these 
phone calls? Do you help the student make these appointments for these oral histories? And faculty members said, no, they do that themselves. There was a pause. Then one of the HR people looked up and said, Your students make cold calls? Making cold sales calls was part of what that company did. But Grossman says the HR folks around the table had no idea what history majors actually learn. Every person who came into that room assumed that history majors spent all of their time either memorizing facts and dates or becoming expert at some small, uh, significant or insignificant thing. The AHA realized it needed to do a better job of demonstrating one of the central skills that history majors can bring to the workplace— critical thinking. In fact, if you look through the brochures produced by English, philosophy, or religious studies departments, don't be surprised if most of them tout the value of the kind of critical thinking their graduates have learned. It's a central promise of any modern humanities major. But what does critical thinking mean, and can it be measured? At Augustana College in Rock Island, Illinois, Professor Lendl Calder is starting off his Problems in U.S. History class with some music. That's Mavis Staples that you're listening to as you come into class today. A veteran of many of the 1960s struggles in the civil rights movement, one of the greatest voices of soul and rhythm. Professor Calder has been a leader in the AHA's national movement, a process they called tuning. Individual history departments tune their courses and curriculum to better align what they assess with what they teach. Before he joined the cause, Calder says he was like a lot of other professors. He set up his classes based on a rather vague set of objectives. The question was, what does the textbook say? (laughs) What does Dr. Calder think is true about the past? Students were assessed on how well they could reconstitute what their book said and what I thought. He says most of his colleagues did the same. So tuning was the incentive that got us talking together at department meetings about what do we want our students to know and to be able to do when they get a history degree. Perhaps the most vital thing a history major needs to be able to do is judge the value of historical evidence. For example, how trustworthy is a letter, a newspaper article, or some other form of archival document? What can be learned from a picture? Students tend to think of information as being a given and as just existing, free-floating in the atmosphere and usable to advance any sort of point of view you want to push. For years, Calder used multiple-choice quizzes and tests, or a written essay or paper, to assess a student's capacity for critical historical thinking. Sometimes that didn't happen until midterm, halfway through a course. That could mean students who weren't catching on struggled on their own for weeks and weeks. Now, in addition to essays, Lendl Calder and his colleagues at Augustana College use a technique called a HAT. HAT stands for History Assessment of Thinking. A HAT is a new and really interesting form of assessment developed by the Stanford History Education Group. Historical thinking is a way of looking at the world that takes into account where information comes from and how to reconcile discrepancies among different information sources. Sam Weinberg helped develop historical assessments of thinking at Stanford University. History 
teaches us how to deal with confusion. It teaches us how to make choices among competing positions and to look for the evidence of those competing positions. One of the hats Stanford developed uses a painting made in the early 20th century called The First Thanksgiving. And it purports to represent the relations between the Wampanoag Indians and the European settlers when they encountered them in what is known as the First Thanksgiving. The painting kind of looks like it came from a children's book. Pilgrim men in buckle hats look on as women in aproned dresses serve food to bare-chested Native Americans sitting cross-legged on the ground. The year of the first Thanksgiving was 1621. There's about a 311-year discrepancy between the actual event that the painting represents and the painting itself. So we asked students, would this painting be a useful resource to a historian trying to understand the nature of the relations between those two groups when they came together in 1621. Lendl Calder uses the first Thanksgiving assessment in his Problems in U.S. History class at Augustana College. It's a simple assignment that assesses one aspect of historical thinking, can be done in class, and can be quickly evaluated. Quick evaluation is the key part. Calder doesn't have to wait until a midterm test or an essay to get a sense of what his students know and can do. In this case, there are three levels of skill. Naive, meaning that the student takes the picture at face value. Developing, meaning they're somewhat doubtful of it as a source. And proficient, meaning they know the happy scene is mostly nostalgic imagination, not a reliable accounting of the event. This is how you did as a class on the first Thanksgiving history assessment task. 80% of you were rated basic or naive, 8% emergent, and 12% of you were able to source that document at a proficient level. Well, that doesn't look very good, does it? No, it doesn't. But the good news is that Professor Calder now knows he has to drill deeper with the class on how to judge the validity of historical evidence. So in today's class, he does just that. Take a look at the photograph on screen. I'm not sure why, but this is the third most requested photograph from the Library of Congress. It's a picture of the 1963 March on Washington. Civil rights leaders in suits and ties march in a row with a small forest of placards carried behind them. Here's your history assessment test. In the first question, I'm asking you to explain why a historian might not think that this photograph alone provides enough evidence to draw conclusions about the March on Washington. The second question asks what the students would want to know about the photographer who shot the picture. The exercise only takes a few minutes. I said the photo shows a unified, proper, and calm crowd when in reality they were filled with anger and determination in demanding their rights. We also do not know anyone in the picture besides the military. All right. Let's get another one. (coughs) Matt? I just said, uh, while the photo provides a visual for the size of the march, it does not show what is being said by the protesters, and more importantly, it does not provide information on who exactly is a part of the crowd. We know the photographer works for who? Um, The U.S. Information. The U.S. Information Agency. The USIA was created during the Cold War. Its aim was to counter anti-American propaganda generated by the Soviet Union and other communist adversaries. The Soviets were particularly critical of discrimination in the U.S. against African Americans. USIA dispatches included images of peaceful protest as a central tenet of American democracy. Lendo Calder explains that the photo is not a reliable historical document. It's because of the nature of the source. It's a propaganda. This photograph, we can assume, was cropped 
and even taken at a particular moment in order to tell a story, the story that we identified earlier. Look, this is how protest happens in the United States of America. People don't riot. People don't start revolutions. They protest peacefully and respectively because they know their government's going to listen. I talked with a number of Lendl Calder's current and former students, and to a person they said his lessons on critical historical thinking were eye-opening. Originally, I was taught, well, if this source is from a, you know, a .edu or an academic journal, it's safe. This is student Matt Payton, a history major. But that's not always necessarily the case, and you have to understand who actually is writing the source, who, where were they at the time, what time was it written, and kind of their stance on the topic that they're writing about. Here's Emily Pentec, an engineering and business management major. Critical thinking means going beyond just the outer surface of what we're learning. I think for critical thinking, you have to take into account different perspectives, and you also have to go into the topic deeper than what's expected. Taking things for face value is something that I feel like I used to do kind of before I came here, but this is kind of making me step back and look at what's going on and making me trying to understand what's really happening. That was Eric Hazinga, a history and French major. And here's Grace Harvey, a secondary education and history major. When you're in college, people are presenting you with facts and stories and articles to read, and they're helping you through critically thinking about what those actually mean. But when you're out on your own, you're looking for a job, people are trying to sell you things, you always need to be aware. You need to be aware of the different agendas that they may have or the different ideas that they may have. And so I think it's important, especially when you're on your own as a graduate. Historians are under a lot of pressure to demonstrate the practicality of their degrees. Some comes from students and their families. Some comes from state and federal lawmakers. In 2002, Congress enacted a law called No Child Left Behind. It vastly expanded the federal government's role in holding K-12 public schools accountable for student success. It also expanded the testing of students in reading and math to assess their learning. Then came the global financial crisis in 2007. Meanwhile, state lawmakers across the country were scrutinizing how public colleges and universities were spending taxpayer dollars. Historian Ann Hyde of the University of Oklahoma says the second decade of this century was an anxious time for many history departments. We were just beginning to come out of the big economic depression. People were looking at colleges and universities and being much more critical. So, you know, state legislatures were much more interested in what was going on in people's classrooms, and many faculty weren't prepared for that. The accrediting agencies that monitor the quality of education at public and private colleges and universities were also taking a closer look at what teachers taught and students learned. Ann Hyde was at Colorado College at the time. It's a small, selective private school in Colorado Springs. The college's history department was up for its 10-year review by the accreditor. And we dismissed all of their demands to do real assessment. And we said, well, we know what we're doing. We read students' papers. We don't need any help with assessment. And we just dismissed what they said. And we failed our assessment, which is really bad. If you're not accredited, you can't actually, you know, run the institution. So we had a very quick turnaround. We had one year to begin to figure out some ways to measure what people were actually learning. Ann Hyde then became deeply engaged in the AHA's tuning initiative. She and her colleagues at Colorado College determined that high-stakes midterms reveal too little too late. More small assignments and more variety are key. 
preparing a podcast or working on a little website or um, an advertising campaign. There are all kinds of things you can do that students can demonstrate what they know. And breaking that up into a bunch of small pieces allows them to kind of slowly figure these pieces out. The tuning process has been criticized by some historians and other academics. Prominent among them is Eric Gilbert of Arkansas State University. He writes a blog called Bad Assessment. Gilbert argues that there isn't enough evidence that new forms of assessment are better than the age-old practice of profs giving out grades. As for critical thinking... Things like learning and critical thinking are are extraordinarily difficult to measure effectively. I think we're teaching procedural skills, many of which are quite valuable. But I'm not totally convinced that you can teach people things like critical thinking. Eric Gilbert says college professors already have a valid tool for assessing student learning, grades. Historian Lendl Calder gives grades, but he says a weakness in grades is that few would-be professors in graduate school ever get formally taught how to teach. Well, I grade, and I believe my grades actually measure learning. But I've made uh, quite an effort to make sure that my assessments align with the outcomes of my course. Under those conditions, grades can be really good indicators of learning. But in many cases, professors may not have thought about outcomes. They don't know how to design assessments that measure the outcomes that they state for their courses. And so things are out of alignment, and the grades aren't measuring what they think they're measuring. About 120 colleges and universities have taken part so far in the American Historical Association's tuning project, and the work continues. The AHA's Julia Brookins is optimistic about the future of history. I'm confident that if we can avoid this spiral of disinvestment in history programs, the discipline will rebound. I think it has intrinsic value. It has intrinsic value for students and for society. And the departments that have been involved in tuning have done a lot of work in figuring out how they can be most useful to their institutions, to their students, to their communities. And I think that's what's going to help with that rebound. Brookins says if historians can make an effective argument for why learning from the past still matters, she thinks her discipline should be okay. That's it for this episode. Let us know what you think. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Educate Podcast or write us at contact at apmreports.org. And one note of disclosure, the Lumina Foundation has been a financial supporter of the AHA's tuning process and of APM reports, but Lumina had no influence on our coverage of this subject. Alex Baumhart and Chris Julin produced the podcast. This episode was mixed by Veronica Rodriguez. We partner with The Heckinger Report, a nonprofit independent news organization focused on inequality and innovation in education. Support for APM Reports comes from Lumina Foundation and the Spencer Foundation. I'm Stephen Smith. Thanks for listening. This is APM, American Public Media.